Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. The captain is here, and I'm excited about it. Oh, you're so welcome, homie. I'm so stoked to have you. I got to tell you, I started following you a little while ago, and I had no idea how not only hilarious you were, but full of substance you were. (laughs) I appreciate that. I don't know what you mean by a little while. Hopefully it's uh, longer than a year because I feel like that's when, you know, the tailwind of my really good work started coming out. But I appreciate the support. I appreciate having me on here today. And I think we're going to have a great conversation. We were just kind of talking a little bit about our obsessions with different types of books. And I just showed you my random stack that I just keep close to me as like a comfort blanket because I'm an odd human. And we were having discussions about like hardcover books and things like that. And there's so much to you that's really fascinating to me. And you kind of were giving me some more information prior. And I want to get into that a little. But you were you were kind of telling me that you were into advertising and, and film work. And that's really interesting to me because now I can see why your Instagram and your Twitter and all of those things and the way that you write is so eloquent and well done is because you have an eye for things that most people don't. Yeah, I mean, my writing career really began in advertising. I mean, in college is when I decided I wanted to be a writer. It's when I really felt like that was the career path for me. And there's really nothing else I could imagine myself doing at this this point in my life. So when I got out of college, I was trying to find work as a writer, an advertising job was really what I was looking for because I knew it paid well and it was going to allow me to support myself. So my first real paid gig was a copywriter for an advertising agency. And it really taught me how to write in very succinct ways while still getting a point across because ultimately that's, that's you know the goal of advertising is to convey an emotion or something in a very short time frame. And so you can see how that kind of shaped my writing. And then at the time, Twitter was, I think it was 140 characters. Twitter was very short. And when I would write scripts for clients, I would make observations or jokes. I would try and write it into a TV script and the client wouldn't like it, say it was a little too risque for them. And I would think, damn, this is a good fucking observation. I can't just let this die. So I started tweeting them. I started tweeting like my comparisons of dating. I started tweeting like little life advice and anecdotes. And those started to get a little bit of headway and my Twitter started to grow. And so a lot of my short writing style was both my advertising background, but at the time you had to write short on Twitter. And I really think it separates a good writer from just a mediocre writer. If you can convey something very deep in very few words, I think that's kind of the ultimate mark of 
an understanding of, of the power of words in general. You don't need a long, lengthy paragraph to describe things if you understand words are powerful and you can select the right 10 or 12 words and get that point across. So I've tried to do that with a lot of my work. A lot of my books are written the same way where I intentionally don't overwrite concepts. I like to keep things short and digestible so you can get through it quickly and not feel overwhelmed and then kind of sit and think on it and apply it to your life. Uh, so I do appreciate, again, everything you just said about my work because that's kind of where I've tried to take it. Um, I don't do as much in advertising now, more so I'm focused on my writing. I, every now and then I do contracts with you know clients that I like, but even in advertising, I always had a lot of principle in my work where I refused to work for pharmaceutical companies, for example. I did work on some political campaigns, but I refused to work for any politician I didn't personally agree with or think they had an opportunity to better you know, the state I was in at the time. I started advertising in Utah. I moved to Las Vegas. I lived in New York City for many years. I lived in LA for many years. So I've kind of been all over through advertising. Um, and it's a love-hate relationship. I, I love what it's allowed me. There's a lot of my peers and a lot of individuals in advertising that I've lost respect for over the past couple of years, given what's happened with, you know, the media and what we've seen, you know, the, the hoodwink that's happened over the majority of society. But that's kind of a little background on me. I'm happy to talk about whatever you want to talk about. So <clears throat> that's interesting that you brought that up. So you worked with a lot of these people, obviously, that are that are kind of doing, I'm going to say the the dirty work now, the work that's just kind of making the, the world seem like it's so much worse than it is. And um, that's interesting because you just seem like a really positive dude. And I kind of want to go back a little bit further. We talk a lot on the show about um, you know, how people get to where they got to or with the decisions that they made and their mental health and moving forward through that. Did you always want to work in advertising and writing when you were younger? Is this something that no. was brought on? No, no. I wanted to be a musician first and foremost. Um, I played the drums growing up. I really wanted to be in a band. I wanted to uh, to play heavy metal music. Um, okay. I actually, I, I actually was a tour manager for a while in the Mayhem Festival with some of those metal bands. Uh, I took a little break from my, my writing career to, to tour manage. Um, but yeah, growing up, I wanted to be a musician. And but also growing up, my mom was an English major and she was a writer and my father was an illustrator and he was an artist. And so my parents actually did children's books together and reading was a big part of my childhood. When it came to earning my allowance, my mom would often often give me the choice. Do you want to mow the lawn for five dollars or do you want to read a book for five dollars? And I always opted to read books. And so there were summers in between grade school. I would read 15 books because that was what I would do instead of doing my chores. I would choose to read instead. So I grew up reading a lot. I always had a fondness for it. It allowed my mom and I to bond a lot. Like my mom got me into the classics very early on. My mom's a huge fan of Mark Twain. So she had me reading Mark Twain. She had me reading Jules Verne. She had me reading, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like the real classic novels I was reading in second and third grade because I was just drawn to them so much. And then obviously as every kid those days, I was really into like goosebumps and stuff like that too. But oh gosh, I, I read a lot. <laughs> yeah, those were, those were the, those were the shit back then. So oh, yeah. I read a lot. I read a lot growing up and I learned to write for my mom. Cause you know, I, she would often allow me to do book reports for an extra like dollar in my allowance. I'd write a book report on our family typewriter and present to my mom. So she really ingrained that written word into me, but I thought I was going to be a musician. 
then I got into high school and I'm a bigger guy. I'm six, six. Um, I got into sports and I ended up getting a full ride scholarship to play football at a local college. Jesus. I took that. I took that even though I absolutely hated football. Um, I thought it would be a good chance to get my school paid for. And I don't know if you're familiar with collegiate athletes, but if you don't love the sport, you're not going to last long because it is your every waking breath. You're either watching film on the field, you're in some kind of meeting. And I guess you could say fortunately, but also unfortunately, I dislocated my knee two weeks into training camp, which put me on the injured list. And I just started taking painkillers. I developed a painkiller addiction and I I really, I, I like parties much more than football. So I went that route. I really fucked away my first year and a half of school. Um, I was just, you know, doing drugs with my buddies all the time. I had some of my friends actually, actually overdose um, later on. But I, uh, after doing that for a while, I decided it was time to move back home and get my shit together. So I think it was 19. I moved back home. I re-enrolled in school. But this time, my focus was to, to be a writer. Um, it was something I had a passion for. I was still the creativity that I thrived for. The creativity that I wanted from music was going to be fulfilled through writing. And so while I was in college, I was writing a local music column for a newspaper, reviewing like bands that came through town, reviewing new albums. And that was my first real gig as a writer. Didn't pay shit, but it allowed me to get a lot of my work out there. Then I worked for a nutrition company. Again, didn't pay very well, but it taught me a lot of you know experience. I was writing emails, stuff like that. But I always knew that if I wanted to make real money as a writer, because other people had told me to work in advertising. So it wasn't something I really desired to do, other than the fact that I wanted to support myself writing. And I wanted to be able to have an apartment, have a truck, and do that as a writer. And so advertising was the route. I got denied by every single advertising agency in Salt Lake City, Utah, except one. So I'd, I'd gone to all these meetings. I had people verbatim tell me, your work is good, but you have your fingers tattooed. You won't present well to clients. Because advertising at the time was still very corporate. And so I had this last interview with this agency. I told the creative director, listen, if you don't hire me, I'm just going to say, fuck this. And I'm going to stop trying to work in advertising. He gave me a shot and my career really took off from there. Um, my skill set thrived really well on advertising. And so it really helped my career a lot. And then, like I said, I kind of built this whole persona on the side, which was more or less what I really wanted to write was what I was putting on social media. Um, but it wasn't anything I was paying me. I didn't write my first book for you know a couple of years after I had a social media following. I wrote my first book, I think, in 2015. I'd already been doing it for three years at that point. So Advertising was not something I sought to do, but it is something I still, like I said, I have a love-hate relationship with. I love a lot of the work I do. I hate a lot of the industry, um, but there's a lot of great people in the industry too. And I just, like you were saying, seeing what's happened the past couple of years as a writer, I know the power of words and I've seen the way they've been twisted. I've seen the way they've been used to manipulate. And I'm glad you said that my feed feels very positive because that was one decision I made in early 2020. I told my girlfriend, I said, I am not going to feed into this fear. I'm not going to feed into this bullshit. I'm going to write things. I'm going to use my skill. I'm going to use my following to write things that unify people, to write things that challenge people to question what they're being told. I'm going to write things that give people hope. And that's what I've done throughout the past two and a half years is trying to just get people to understand there's still humanity out there. There's still a need for humanity out there. 
Um, so I'm really glad you said that because that was a decision I consciously made um, in the beginning. Well, a few things I want to touch on there. Number one, we'll go to that. So I, I, I really, you know, I take a lot of issue and I, I don't know how long you've known, you know, what I do, but I take a lot of issue with people who are constantly drawing this negative um, mindset and this idea that they need to be feeding into fear. I really preach the idea of turning the fucking news off. There's, there's no need mm -hmm. for it. It's just damaging. And it's, it's causing yeah. psychological issues that we're going to be dealing with for exponential amounts of time. We have no, we have no idea the, the weight that this, this hate and division has caused. And when I see people who, who have actively chosen to not to literally have said, I'm not going to feed into it. I'm not going to get into it. I'm going to only put out positive things. I really appreciate that because we already have so much fear-based, you know, hate going on in division. There's just no need for it. And we need people like you that are actively making that, you know, that effort every single day, because it's very easy for you. If you really wanted to, you could flip that switch and it could go a completely different direction without. And I could get and I could get a ton of likes and a ton of shares and I can get a lot of attention. I was actually just going to say, I'm glad you said it'd be very easy. I was going to say, I think fear is the easier route to take, especially in 2020. You saw mm -hmm. a lot of influencers, a lot of writers, a lot of celebrities, a lot of bullshit creators jump on the fear wagon, repost videos that were bullshit, repost stuff that was fear based solely because they wanted interaction on their social media accounts, which is incredibly fucked up and i think they don't understand that people are going to remember that and the damage too like yeah. they're not being conscious of their own what they're putting out i mean if you have someone you have a massive following if mm -hmm. you would have just started putting out little bits at a time that hits a different way than if i were to sit on my account and be you know blah, 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 the world is dark it's going to hit differently man it's just mm -hmm. going to hit differently um I think so a lot of it is, I was going to say, people weren't, they didn't want to take the risk either because it was risky early on. I mean, I, I lost a fairly large contract I had with a client in LA because of the stuff I was writing online because I wasn't, I mean, LA was obviously, I think, one of the worst microcosms of division. And because I wasn't jumping on that and I was speaking out and telling people to think for themselves. Um, and a lot of people have said, oh, well, your messages are so big. Why aren't you choosing political sides? To that, I'd say I chose a side. The side I chose, the size of the people. I'm on. I'm on the people side. I'm not picking a political side. I'm on the side of people because that's what we all have in common. And because I wasn't jumping on the bandwagon of what was going on, I had a contract. I was working for a large agency in LA, and I'd already been working there for three months, and it was supposed to continue for a year. They straight ghosted me. I couldn't get a response. Like it, it, it was the most juvenile way of handling it. Like they couldn't even tell me the truth. They just stopped answering my emails. I got my last check. My retainer just wasn't renewed and I never heard from them again. <laughs> <laughs> and I told my girlfriend, I was like, wow, this is, uh, I'm not going to use the name of the agency. It's probably mm -hmm. one of the top 10. It's probably one of the top 10 largest advertising agencies in the world. Doesn't um, shock they me. are massive thousands of employees and the way they handled that was just like oh wow this is uh this is fucking pathetic children it was children. it was terrible and now i'm sure i'm actually i'm not i mean maybe they've come around and be like wait a minute maybe maybe someone like that is who we need on our creative team because that's the kind uh -huh. of guy that's willing to take risks with creativity i'm willing to push big ideas even though i get 
um, you know, resistance from a client or I get resistance from a, you know, an audience that's supposed to be focus grouping a concept. I'm very willing to fight for ideas that I believe in. And that's, that's to me the kind of people I think you'd want to hire for a creative team, but I was, I was wrong with them. I think, I think we, uh, I think as human beings, we underestimate the, the importance of falling in line when it comes to business or when it comes to political party or when it comes to division in terms of uh, hate. You know, when we when we start to look at the way the, the world is before pre-COVID, we were dealing with what I think it was like, it, it doesn't it doesn't even have start the conversation anymore. Like it's not even in the conversation. I think it was first it was like me too. And then after mm-hmm. me too, kind of calmed down. And then COVID kind of took in. And then all of a sudden, it doesn't matter. Me too doesn't matter, right? Because it's not a conversation. Now it's a division. There needs to be a unvaccinated versus vaccinated. And that's now the conversation. And people are quite quite stern on that. And what's really sad about it is you've seen, you've seen families fall apart. You've seen what mm-hmm. it does to a society when you divide people like that. And the thing that blows my mind the most um, is, especially in America, you guys have lived a different type of division in your history. You would think that people would have learned from what that can do to a society. I mean, I'm Canadian, so we're just a nightmare right now. So I can't really speak at a turn <laughs> or I'll uh, be arrested, but that's a different conversation. But my point yeah. is, like, you know, we've really lost that ability to see humility and, and, and that we're all the same. Yeah. We've really lost humanity. I think that's the biggest loss in all of this is just, just concern for people for the sake of them being another individual and not for their choices. Um, and what I think is most frustrating, especially for other people who have been speaking out is the whole goal of doing that is to benefit everyone. Like they're not doing it to benefit an agenda. They're doing it to benefit your right to kind of live the way you want to live and choose the way you want to choose to live. And it's been very frustrating to see people be attacked for that. Um, I don't feel like I've been attacked that badly. I mean, it's all relative to me. I've said a lot of controversial stuff online over the years. Um, you know, way before cancel culture was this thing that people were concerned about. I was, I was upsetting people online because one early on, that was kind of, yeah, I enjoyed doing it. I really liked <laughs> feathers and, um, I, I would intentionally word things in a way that I knew would piss people off. And I used, I used to be, I used to be much more antagonistic online than I am now. It really shifted in 2019, which was kind of an appropriate time for it to shift for me, especially, you know, seeing now what 2020 held, you know, in 2019, I I left New York city, I quit my advertising job and I was going to just focus on myself and see what I could do with my career. I moved to LA to be closer to my girlfriend. We've been doing long distance, you know, in New York and LA for too long at that point. And LA just, I did not resonate with it. I struggled to find connections there. I struggled just to feel okay there. I fucking hated living in LA and I just got really depressed and my career fell off. I lost a lot of my, my trust in myself because I'd walked away from a, a pretty a pretty stable position where I was in New York City. I was essentially a partner in an agency. I was running an office there. And I got really depressed and I just told everyone on social media, I said, listen, I need some time off. So I took about 30 days. I shut everything off on my phone. And I didn't engage in social media. I moved back to Utah to spend time with family and friends. And I came back to social media with the 
a newfound appreciation for everyone who had supported me up to that point. And that was when I made a decision to not be so antagonistic for the sake of being antagonistic online. Um, obviously, whenever you take a stance on anything or say things as straightforward as I do, it's still going to be taken that way. But I no longer do it with the sole intention of pissing people off. Um, and it couldn't have come as a better time because leading into 2020, I had already really embraced vulnerability in my writing. And I was very honest about my own life. And I just had this deep appreciation for the career I was able to have based on people supporting me, essentially complete strangers who had followed my accounts for years and liked my writing and bought my books and supported my, my different projects. And so when 2020 hits, like the last thing I'm going to do is try and divide these people. Um, so it just came at a very good time for me. And so when I got, you know, initial resistance or people, you know, getting pissed off or, you know, reading a couple of the DMs I'd get from people, you know, calling me all sorts of, you know, names based on <laughs> the way they interpreted my message. It doesn't phase me. It really doesn't. Um, I told someone this earlier, once you've admitted to half a million people, you were depressed enough that you wanted to kill yourself. Nothing really bothers you after that. Um, there's nothing you can really admit beyond that, that I think is more vulnerable or almost embarrassing for people to admit. And so at that point, like all the hate I get online for saying what I think is right, it just, it's really water off a duck's back at this point in my career. And I'm very grateful to have that mindset. Yeah, because that, that doesn't always happen, right? And I think, I think that was one thing that kind of drew me to you within your writing was the vulnerability. It's kind of something that, you know, I talk about often because, you know, in, in the community that I come from with the veterans, I mean, it's an epidemic. I mean, for God's sakes, we're losing more than 22 people a day. We've lost, mm -hmm. we've lost four times more people to suicide than we did during the actual war. I mean, and that's not even discussed. And so I think, you know, in, in order to move humanity forward and to help others being vulnerable and being honest, regardless of the repercussions of what people think is incredibly useful for others. And considering your writing is, you know, you know, it's antagonistic or, you know, that others are using it or reading it. And you have this following that is, you know, your writing's important to people, right? And it's something they look forward to. So when you're able to sit there as this huge ginormous, you're literally a foot and a half more taller than I am. So when a dude like you, who's tattooed up, who is this huge guy and comes out and says, Hey, I've been struggling with something mental health related. And I legitimately don't want to be on this planet anymore. That people respect you in a way that I don't mm -hmm. even know that, or you can really imagine because it is something that is so now, now it's like a cool thing to talk about your mental health. Right. I mean, fuck, I've been screaming it for six years. Why hasn't anybody cared? And mental health has been an issue. And when you can be that vulnerable, you hold a, you know, a different type of place in people's hearts. You just do. Yeah. I think I was surprised by the support I got when I first started talking about it in 2019. Um, I remember my girlfriend and I had just separated. I went to the Sofitel hotel in Beverly Hills to get myself a nice room to cry in with a good mini bar. And so I remember, I remember I was there you bitch over I, was, here? I was there and I was, uh, oh yeah, I was, when, it, when, <laughs> when we find it, when we finally decided to separate, I just couldn't be in the condo anymore. And I was like, fuck it. And I just, I was like, I need a nice place to cry. So I was, uh, <laughs> I remember I was in my room and I was just crying and I was like, I, I 
don't know what to do. And so I wrote the post on social media and I told people as a listen, like I am struggling. I've been burying this stuff for, you know, six months at this point and I've hit a breaking point. It's ruined my relationship, my depression and my inability to, to work through it. And a lot of it was my ego at the time. I wasn't willing to admit I was as depressed as I was. I thought it was, I figured I was a fairly intelligent guy and I was like, oh, I can, I can think my way out of this, which I think a lot of people fall into that depression. trap as well. And, um, I remember when I first posted that, I, my notifications were just going wild and I resisted reading them because I thought they were going to be, you know, stuff that was going to just make the wound bigger at the time. And they were all positive. And I had friends I hadn't heard from years that followed me online, texted me. And it just really made me feel good to know that people supported me as an individual and not just this captain persona online. And over the coming months, when I started to return to my platforms and talk again, I had a lot of people write to me and tell me, you know, I idolized you. Your lifestyle was one I, I wanted to live. And to see that you were struggling really helped put things into perspective for me. And it assured me that I could get through it as well. And I had wives write me and tell me their husbands decided to go to therapy because I started talking about going to therapy. And, see? Uh, these yeah, these men had formed these men had formed, you know, therapy groups where they'd go walk their dogs together just to talk. And all of this was spurred from me finally taking that risk. And so that I think that was also when I realized my platform was more powerful than I was giving it credit. Um, and so again, that's why come 2020, I I'd seen the power of my platform when I used it correctly, when I used it to unify, when I used it to help people feel related to and understood. I'd seen it happen in 2019. And so it really was like the perfect opportunity to uh, to use it for, for good, if you want to put it in you know, super villain terms, to use my power for good um, throughout the past two years. And so it's been great. And you can see there's been a big shift in my work. My first book, Fucking History, was very much entertainment based. It's all still true. And I still read the book and I still agree with everything I said in there. I won't take back anything it's I still said. Still funny as but, hell though. Yeah. It was it was, but it was it was very it was very entertainment focused, whereas my follow-up book, Speech Therapy, you can tell is written with more of a personal tone of wanting to help as opposed to just making you laugh. Right. Um and when I did deliver that second book to my agent, that's the first line of feedback she had for me. She said this is exactly what I wanted from you. It's a good evolution of your work. And this feels like it was written by Kyle Creek and not the captain, where the other one was written by the captain, a.k.a. Kyle Creek. So I kind of flipped it on that book. And that's where my route's going to go with a lot of my writing in the future. I'm currently working on three books right now. Um, one of them is going to be a children's book. One of them is going to be more of a, a memoir style of my experiences becoming a father when I wasn't ready to. And another one is most likely going to be a novel. So I don't know when those will come out, but it definitely has shifted the way I write. Um, and it's more enjoyable for me to write now, too, knowing that my work has has carried some weight to it. I enjoy what I write a lot more, and it feels more purposeful than ever. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when you're doing something and you start to get that feedback, I can 100% understand, you know, the the nervousness of wanting to put something out when you're, when you're the guy that you are and people expect a certain thing from you. But I mean, for God's sakes, I'm so glad you did because, you know, mental health is a bitch and we don't need to fight that kind of stuff alone. But I, I, I do have a couple questions though about football for you because now, cause how old are you now? 35. 
Okay. So that's about the time. So there, there, there's a reason I'm asking you. I just went through an experience with, um, with my own head and uh, my, actually my husband's and uh, you know, I had, I was injured in the military. So, you know, PTS was like a, a that's what I was released for. But what I'm getting to is head injuries, man. Um, I actually we, never got a head injury in football, but I have, that's had what three I, was asking. I have had three concussions, but they weren't football related. I've had three concussions. One, I fell out of a tree One, I got bucked off a horse and then one, I got bucked off a pony. Um, I think my first concussion, I was seven or eight is when I got knocked out cold and lost memory. And then I had another one probably on 13 or 14. I was bucked off a horse again. And then I fell off a tree just goofing off being an idiot one time. And I, those are the three times I know that I've completely lost consciousness. Um, but football, I never had any injury other than uh, my dislocated knee. That's good. So those head injuries that you got going on there. Fun fact. <laughs> Fun fact, because I learned these the that, hard way. I've heard, I've heard this fact, and I don't think it's actually that fun. No, it's not. But there's a way to fix it. That's why it's fun now, because it can be. It can be also like we can fix all of these problems. Is just you know these head injuries and these TBIs. We're just learning that they affect people. You know, 10, 15 years later, especially men with mm -hmm. depression, and it's such a such a common thing. And I'm starting to talk about it quite frequently now because of what my husband went through as a supercross racer and watching him bottom out, but you know, things like that and men and the, the hormone levels and testosterone from head hits is just astronomical now. You know, that's actually something I haven't really done much research in, which it's funny. Like last week, a buddy of mine brought it up to me too, when he asked how many concussions I'd had. And I said, you know what? I think I've had three and I've never actually done the work to, to equate those two, what I might have, I might have uh, been through. I always was under the idea that a lot of my depression was self-caused because I was suppressing who I really wanted to be in the sense that in my 20s, I really started to inhabit a character and expectations of me because I had become successful and I felt the need to take care of my friends and family. And I was kind of known as, you know, the single successful party boy and so my buddy's like oh you want to have a good time go visit kyle in new york like if you go visit uh, kyle in new york he'll take care of you and so <laughs> i got into this realm where my whole life revolved around socializing and alcohol and i was i was i was telling this to my girlfriend a couple of days ago because i was planning a bachelor party for my brother and i was saying my old lifestyle was like three bachelor parties a week because that's just the way i lived and it was a, a lot of my advertising work revolved around hospitality. I worked for a lot of hotels. I worked for a lot of bars. I worked for a lot of uh, groups of like owners that own multiple restaurants in the city. And so it was my job to be out. Right. Um, and I always prided myself on the ability that I could go out and go to a meeting hung over the next day and still crush my presentations. And so I think years and years of that, I, I distanced myself from who I really was as a person. And I think a lot of my depression came from living this character as opposed to living myself i mean a simple example of that is i love fishing i grew up fishing a lot as a kid i grew up in the mountains of utah that was just what, what me and my brothers and dad did we fished all the time and then i got to a point in my life where i thought fishing was dorky i was like fishing is what dorky mountain boys do and so i just like as a teenager like i just stopped fishing because i thought it was fucking lame and it wasn't until like my early 30s and I was like, I loved this growing up. Why don't I do this anymore? And so I started going fishing again. I started doing things that I enjoyed as a kid that at some point in my life, I just pushed away from. 
And I think I did that with a lot of other things in my life. Um, relationships is a good example of that. I, I really prided myself on being single. I prided myself on not wanting a relationship. And I intentionally didn't connect with people on deep levels. Um, and I thought I was... I thought I was noble in the sense that I would go on dates with women and I made it very clear that I wasn't looking for a relationship. And so if I hurt people or if people felt led along, I always was like, hey, I didn't do that. I told them from the get go what my intention was. And deep down, I craved connection. I, I, I craved being understood and I wanted someone I could rely on. And I just didn't allow myself to have that because it didn't fit my image, didn't fit my career, didn't fit my lifestyle. And so it's bringing us all back around when it comes to head trauma. I'm sure that could have played a role, but I think a lot of mine was just a slow boil of me doing it to myself to where when I disconnected from my career and my life in New York and I moved to LA and I kind of had a clean slate and I lost everything that I took pride and worth and confidence in, I was left with an empty hole of like, oh, fuck, I have to refigure who I am. And it was just very, very hard to do. See, that's the difference between you and other individuals. You know, you're, you're able to have that introspective, um, really outside of yourself conversation about, you know, why you are feeling the way you're feeling or whether or not it's, you know, you're able to connect the dots backwards. You're able to see that. Um, I would still be curious to, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. such a, I'm such an ass now because now I, I went through the treatment myself and now I'm like, I would like you to check your levels to see where you're at, my friend, because <laughs> I'm so... down to do it. I'm so, I'm so willing to do stuff like that in the past, awesome. you know, in the past six months, I've gotten really into, um, being connected to my body as much as my mind. Uh, my mind's always been something that I've been fairly protective of. Um, but lately I've, I've, you know, I'm in best, the best shape I've ever been in. Um, I only eat organic. I'm very clean. I rarely drink alcohol now. It's like once in a blue moon because I just feel better. You know, I do cold therapy. I do cryo. I do saunas. Like all this shit that I just didn't care to do because I was like, oh, I'm just going to treat my body like an amusement park and beat the shit out of it for 20 years. And that was like what I was. That was my goal in life. I was like, I'm going to live hard and I'm going to write. A, I'm going to write a lot from it. I'm going to experience as much as I can. And I'm going to intentionally get myself into some weird fucking situations so i have content to write about and now i'm like no i'm going to bed at 10 i'm getting up at six i'm taking my son for a walk i'm gonna go do cryo i'm not gonna go to your birthday party because i got better things i'd rather do and so now i'm very conscious about taking care of myself and i have no problem spending the extra money to do that and so what you're suggesting, I'm actually at a point now where I, I would do it. Whereas a couple of years ago, I'd be like, waste of money. Fuck that. I write great. Uh, my, my brain <laughs> seems to work. And you couldn't have, you couldn't have convinced me there was something lacking because I, I felt like my work was still a good, you know, a good product. And so I felt like I was, I was operating correctly, but I heard someone the other day say, what if you're so good that 20% of you is like enough to get things done? Like, what if you actually did what you had to, to open up like your full potential. And I think I was very much in that realm where I was successful, but I didn't realize how much my lifestyle was holding me back, but I felt like I was operating at the best I could. But now I feel like my writing's better than ever. I feel more productive and I just feel good. I feel clear headed. I don't have as many typos. Even my editor commented last week, like, have you noticed you don't make typos anymore? And I was like, yeah, cause I take care of myself now. <laughs> I love that. It's the small things, man. I, it is. I had, I had that conversation with the doctors and they're like, 
you don't even know what good is. And I was like, what are you talking about? I feel great. Getting out of bed is a monumental task, but I feel great. Yeah. They're like, homie, you don't know what good feels like. And now yeah. I do. And it's terrifying. Terrifying <laughs> in a good way, though, because oh. there's so there's so much potential there. Yeah, but I feel like world domination. Like it's it's like yeah. next level shit, man. Well, that's how I feel. I feel lately that I've been called to do something more. And it's one of those things that's hard to explain. Um but I feel, I just feel like I'm meant for more than I ever was. And it's something that sticks out to me now because when I first met my girlfriend in New York, we were going to a party at an apartment and I, I she remembers this conversation vividly. I remember the occurrence, but not so much the conversation, but to be very open, I was railing lines of cocaine in front of her. And she'd never seen that side of me before. She knew I liked to party and go out, but I was just indulgent. And at the time, I, I loved cocaine. And she got up and left. And I chased her down the hallway of this apartment complex. And I remember her turning around with like tears in her eyes. And she was so frustrated with me. She wasn't sad. She was pissed off. And I couldn't understand why she was mad. I was like, why do you care? You know, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm high out of my mind at the time. And she just said to me, she's like, you have so much more potential than you even know. And this was in 2018. I think she said this to me. She said, so many people look up to you. So many people respect you. And so many people are helped by what you do. And you, this is the shit you choose to do with yourself. And she had to recite those words to me at the time. Like, I remember her being angry. I remember the vibe of the conversation, but she's replayed it for me. And for the first time, I'd say about a year ago, um, right before my son was born, when I started really wrapping my head around being a father and what I, what I could do as far as a legacy for him, that was the first time I think I ever believed it. Um, I didn't really believe her. I was just like, okay, yeah, cool. You know, she probably means I can make more money or whatever. But now I actually really believe it. And what you're saying, it is, it is kind of scary, but I feel like there's just a lot of potential there that I just, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know where it's going to take me. I wish I had like a clear direction on what I felt it was, but I just know there's something there that I'm going to do. That's going to be fucking big. And I, and I think you have the, you have the ability to do that. I mean, you come from a space where you understand advertising, you understand film, you understand the ins and outs and the workings of it and what's necessary to get it done. I mean, I'm, I'm, really curious like you're kind of one to watch because i i'm really curious to see what you're going to come up with next because if you've if you've got that mentality now and you finally believe in yourself in a way that you didn't before i mean and that's what you were putting out when you were subpar like five percent running on fumes <laughs> coked out of your tree i mean i'm really i'm really curious to see what's going to come next i mean i can't see it being anything negative and or um antagonistic i can only see it being positive no, and unifying it couldn't be it couldn't be negative if it was i wouldn't believe in it um even now i write stuff and i'll be like god that is so fucking clever but man that is such a dig i don't know if i can tweet that because it just it just furthers some division or it it uh it encourages the wrong behavior right now but god damn it's funny and save it. my save it. my girl my girlfriend she's like you need an anonymous meme account where you can just make oh. this shit into memes. But then it's like, even then, I don't want to put it out there. I don't want to be the guy that created it, even if it is really good and really funny. So there's a lot of stuff now that 
years ago, I'd, I'd fire off immediately in a tweet and I'd be like, oh, fuck yeah. But now I, I'm very conscious of what I put out. No, and I think that's good. I mean, that just shows that you you understand your responsibility. And I think that's another thing people don't, once they kind of you know garner this this following or this group or whatever, there's a responsibility in that. There really there is. is. There is. I actually probably, I don't know, I'm trying to think. I was living in Las Vegas at the time, so probably 2016. I don't remember what it is that I wrote, but I had a follower of mine write me a very heartfelt message. And at the time, I would check all my DMs. I kind of felt like it was my responsibility to read everyone's DMs. Whereas now, I understand I need to kind of have some disconnect just to protect my own energy. But I was reading this DM, and she was expressing her disappointment in me. And I was like, oh, cool, just another troll getting angry at me. But really, what she was getting across is she was like, you don't understand. I think at the time, I had made 200,000 followers. And she was saying, you have a lot of power and there's a lot of responsibility. And I just don't think you understand that yet. And I was just thinking, Oh, this is just some mom. Like, and I kind of just brushed it away. Um, maybe she'll hear this podcast and remember that, that, that DM, but it's something that I actually think about often now when, when I write a post or when I put something out, I think, what this person was trying to convey to me at the time is what you're just saying. There's a lot of responsibility in that. And it has changed the direction of, of my work for sure. Just accepting that responsibility and it's harder. It's more difficult now to write for me. Whereas it was very easy when I didn't care. It was very easy when I was just trying to be funny. It was very easy when I was just trying to, you know, ruffle some feathers and I think that's why a lot of people shy away from the responsibility of their platform. And I think you see a lot of creators do that where they don't want to accept the responsibility because, yeah, it's more difficult. You have to be more concerned with what you put out and you have to be more targeted and you have to be more, you know, vulnerable with your work. And that's not easy to do. And so you see people do that in their life with the decisions they make. And you see a lot of people do it online. Um, Taking a, you know accountability for what you do is not the easy way to live, but it is the more rewarding way to live. It is a more purposeful way to live. And at times it will make your life easier because you don't question your direction or you don't question what you're doing. You have such a, a background of always making the choice that feels right. That when it comes time to have to stand up for something that's uncomfortable, you're just like, oh, fuck, yeah, this is what I do. Well, that's, and that's the difference I think between you and, and other people who put things out on social media and they're, and they're just pumping things out just to get the attention. And there is that understanding that you, you, you hold, you hold a lot of weight in people. And that'd be curious. I don't, I don't know that you rem remember who she was, but be curious to write her back now, if you could. I don't know if I'd ever find that tweet. I don't remember who she is. I think at the time it was something that I just brushed away as being like someone else that doesn't, they're like, ah, they don't understand how funny I am. Fuck them. It's kind of probably how I read it at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if I could find that person's account again, I absolutely would write them and talk to them. Yeah, that's a that's a special thing, man. And I'm glad that you're able to see that because let's be honest, you could have really went down a path with this and you could have you could have just stayed on that path. And I, I wonder, was it the depression or was it the idea that you were going to become a father? What when did that really click? for you and number one before you answer that because I just realized I forgot to ask something how did you even pull yourself out of that depression so going back to when I would need to try and you know write the ship as they say 
I chose to do the exact opposite of everything I'd been doing up to that point. Um, I went stone cold sober for a hundred days because I wanted to be forced to sit with myself. You know, I made the joke about going to the hotel at the nice mini bar, but I didn't touch the mini bar. I actually went to that hotel and I didn't drink. Um, wow. I had every intention. I had every intention of going there and just being like, you know, fuck this. Um, but I didn't, I went there and I left it untouched and I just, you know, took a long shower and slept for like 15 hours. Um, so I did everything the opposite. I, I didn't drink. I left LA and I surrounded myself with people that knew the real me, knew me as Kyle long before they knew me as the captain or long before they knew me as the businessman I was. And I went to therapy, which is something I was very against. I always had the idea that writers don't go to therapy because therapists take all your ideas away from you. And <laughs> so you need to kind of, you need to bottle it up and use it for writing fuel. And so I went to therapy. I read a lot of the books that previously I thought were maybe too spiritual for me. Um, I, I grew up Mormon and I have oh. a real, dis I have a real distaste for organized religion. And uh, to this day, I still do, but now I'm, open to spirituality in ways that I wouldn't. So I read a lot about connecting with the energy of the universe and stuff that I would, you know, consider foo-foo uh, long Woo -woo before that. Woo-woo is what people yeah, call yeah. me. <laughs> so I was, I was really against that stuff. So I read a lot of those books and I just sat with myself. I remember there were days where I literally just sat there for like an hour and just stared at a wall because I wasn't on social media to distract myself. I was back home in Utah where I didn't have like an easy access to go get away. And so really I just did the opposite of everything. And I felt like that was the only way to get different results was to try something I hadn't tried. And it still took a lot longer because I think you have to get back to living your life and you have to be tested again in like real world situations and you have to have your triggers come up again. And so even though like I came out of that in fall of 2019 feeling pretty strong and my writing made a real shift early 2020 took a toll on me again, you know, when the world shut down and I watched my finances get strained and I watched, you know, I, I moved back to LA and I watched everything about LA that I did enjoy, which are very few things be taken away from me. Like I couldn't go to the beach. I couldn't walk my dog at the park. It was, it was hard. And it really spiraled me backward into a place of anger and a place of, you know, why is this happening to me? And then, you know, victimhood kind of coming back in. And so it was the help of my girlfriend too, being there. We ended up getting back together after about six months of telling me, remember how you felt then, you know, what was it that you need to go back to? And so I had to force myself as uncomfortable it was to go back to those thoughts, go, I reread a lot of those books. And so it's been a journey and I, don't know that I wasn't truly out of it until probably just before my son was born. Because when I first found out I was going to be a dad, I still was very much in the mud again. And it spiraled me down. And for a couple of weeks, I was a real shitty partner. I started drinking heavily again because I just couldn't wrap my head around the idea of being a dad because I was still trying to get my life back on track, you know, recovering from, you know, the shutdowns, the lockdowns. A lot of my work was hospitality based and I lost all my contracts. I lost all my income. And so I was depressed as shit. And I had a lot of my friends and people at the time 
more or less acquaintances. When I told I was going to be a dad, I didn't receive a lot of support. I received a lot of almost condolences like, oh, sorry, your life. So yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like that whole, this is going to all, this is going to all dovetail perfectly into our conversation earlier about responsibility. A lot of people view responsibility as something that's like, I'm sorry, that's happening to you. And the fact that now I had to step up to be a dad, I'm probably the first of my friends to become a dad. And a lot of my friends viewed that as like, damn, that's going to be hard. That's going to suck. And so I got a lot of condolences and random people online, dudes who were fathers themselves were writing me, telling me, oh, that's going to be so hard. And it did not help. I wasn't in the mindset to assimilate that stuff. But I was talking to one buddy of mine who's a father of five and he was down in Vegas. He was down in Vegas for a trip and I haven't told him this yet. Maybe I thought maybe I will. I definitely need to. That conversation shifted it for me. Um, I think my girlfriend's about four months pregnant at the time, maybe three, maybe a little sooner than that. And he said, Kyle, like being a dad is the best thing that happened to me. It's made me more productive. It's made me more creative. It's made me smarter. It's made me more intelligent. And he was the first person in my life to really give me that kind of feedback. And I wasn't someone who felt like I needed that kind of feedback. Again, I feel like I'm fairly intelligent. I was like, oh, I'm going to get through this. But that completely shifted things for me. Like the next day I woke up and I was like, you know what? Everyone had given me feedback lives a lifestyle that I think fucking sucks. Like why would I want to emulate what they're doing at all? And it just, <laughs> it just, it just shifted for me to where it brought me back to when I was in my early twenties and people told me I couldn't work as a writer. It's like all these people that told me I couldn't write, look what I did with that. All these people that are telling me like being a dad is going to be hard for me. No, fuck that. It's going to be awesome. And I just went full bore embracing it and suddenly having that purpose and that drive. Um, I coupled that with Andy Fristella's 75 hard program because it's something I'd wanted to tackle for a while. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this right now too. So by the time he comes, I'm going to be fucking in shape and I'm going to be ready. And I just did all of that at once. And that was probably when I really, really, I would say completely overcame my depression finally. And for the past year, I don't think I've felt much of it at all. Like everyone has a down day. I'll have stuff that frustrates me. But as far as like that real weight of feeling like I don't know what is purposeful in life, it's gone. And that's why I say about a year ago is when I had that shift to where I really feel like I'm being called for something more. I don't know what it is yet, but I know I'm capable of it. And I know it's going to be fucking big. You've got your head on your shoulders now. You're ready for whatever's coming at you. Maybe that's why it didn't come at you before. You were the world knew you weren't ready for it's, it. It's that. It's that's what my girlfriend tells me. She's like, <laughs> it's the exact same stuff she says. She's like, it's a law of attraction stuff, Kyle. Like, it, you weren't ready for it. Um, if it would have given it to you at the time, you would have you would have fucked it up. And it's funny because I remember, I remember when I was partying a lot. I remember actually telling friends of mine. I said, you know what? I'm glad I'm not like really rich. Because if I was really rich, I'd be dead. And I meant it. Like, I knew that if I had a lot of money at that time, I would have blown it doing stupid shit. And when you're speaking that kind of energy into the world, the world's not going to give you anything. They're going to be like, okay, this guy, like, he's, ad- he's admitting if we make him a mega hit, he's going to fuck it up. So let's oh, not damn. do it for him. <laughs> it's true, though. You should marry that woman. And, she's fucking smart. Yeah, she's fantastic. She is. She is you know easily the best person i've ever had in my life dude that's beautiful i love that and she's a fantastic mom she's a oh she's totally right 
Um, because she'll stay stuff, and even now I'll be like, yeah. But then like a week later, I'll be like, God damn it, it actually happened the exact <laughs> way she outlined it. Um, sorcery. She's, she's, she is. Oh yeah, like uh, I actually make a joke about that sorcery in my book, Speech Therapy. Um, she very much is in tune with the world and people around her. She's a massage therapist, and uh, oh yeah, she would she would often be massaging people in L.A. and she would bring up stuff about their lives that they were like, how did you know that? And she's like, I just felt it. I just felt it through you. And she does that. Everyone I've ever introduced her to, whether it's like really good friends of mine I've known for a while, or like if I go to like a business dinner and she's meeting someone for the first time, they all have the same response. They're all like, I don't understand how she connects the way she connects, but you're just drawn to her. And everything she says, it's like just so correct and you're like how is that even possible everyone has that same that same uh sense of uh discovery when they first meet her is like she's one of those she's one of those i think they call them earth angels where you just don't understand until until you meet one my i think my mother is kind of the same way and her and my mom get along really well for that reason i can imagine i mean it sounds like going back to your mom and what she kind of did for you i say did for you because i'm a mom and i mm, understand mm. you know the things that you want to you want to give your child to to better them and and nowadays everything you know it's so much easier to set them in front of a screen and it's so much easier to not give them that attention if you if you don't want to put the effort in but your mom really I'm actually going to take something that you said from here because my son's going on 6 now and he loves to read the guy loves to read mm. he loves books and that that when you were saying you know instead of doing chores she said if you read this book like that's fucking brilliant it really is like i'm a hundred percent gonna adopt that every time i think about it now as an adult because my mom was my mom was probably my age when i was eight or nine doing the math yeah and so she was like it's like man that was really that was like solid foresight into how that can impact your future of uh, not only does it it reaffirms to you that reading is also worth something in the sense that a lot of people want to say work hard, work hard, like hard work is respected. But what she did was like, listen, hard work is good, but reading is also good. So you can go do the hard work and you can earn your money doing the hard work, or you can work towards educating yourself. And that's going to be just as beneficial. And so I don't know if she had that level of, understanding for it at the time but that really is what it enforces in a child is that reading is important and reading is valuable like literally valuable like there's a mon she would attach a monetary amount to the reading and i think it's fucking brilliant i'm absolutely going to adopt that with my son when he's old enough yeah I, i'm not going to lie to you it's out of everybody i've had a conversation with now we're going on a hundred episodes and traveling and talking to other parents and being like hey man like how do you do it like what are you doing that helps your kid because i'll meet some kids like at that weekend, I was telling you about that four by four by 48 and mm. their kids, they have seven of them. Andrew has seven kids. <laughs> I know my good limit. For him. Yeah. Good, good for him. him. But I also know I'm a one and done kind of human. Um, and I'm cool with that, but I know my lines. But anyway, I met these kids and I've never met more well-rounded, respectful, hardworking little humans in my life. And I remember saying to them, like, what do you do? What do you do? That's so different. But the one thing that I got to tell you, out of everyone I've spoken to, that is beyond brilliant. What your mom oh, did is beyond brilliant. I'll be sure to communicate that to her right after this, because I, I've told that story on multiple podcasts, but I don't think I've ever given her the uh, the congratulations on it. Um, 
I've talked about it with her. I say, hey, every time I'm on a podcast, I somehow bring up you making us read, or well, not making us, you giving us the opportunity to read instead of do chores. And everyone seems to really respond to that. But it's definitely something that I think she needs more uh, more of a, a congratulatory, you know, yeah. applause for. You need to fucking it, party it, it, for it. It was really smart. And it was cool because I remember I tied an old quilt between two trees in my backyard. I remember lying in this stinky old mothballed quilt reading books one summer in Mapleton, Utah, which is a small town against the mountains there. Um, and I remember hearing the lawnmower going. I think my brother was mowing the lawn. And I was, <laughs> I was, I think I was reading The Count of Monte Cristo. Like it's one of those, like, you know how you have those very, very good, perfect memories? It's one of those where like the sun was shining through like the yellow of the quilt and I was reading the County of Monte Cristo, listening to my brother mow the lawn. I remember thinking to myself, what a sucker. Like, what a sucker. <laughs> like I'm I'm over here just like deep and you know, enjoying the trial of this man's, you know, escape from prison, just entertaining myself, and I'm gonna make the same amount of money he's gonna make mowing the lawn. <laughs> Work smarter, not harder, buddy. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. No, that's uh I was never made to read unless it was for school. So there was this attachment to reading that was always like not a punishment, but more of like a, a requirement of life, but not something I, that was made to be enjoyable. I think a lot of people have that. And I always kind of, my heart kind of sinks whenever I hear people say, oh, I haven't read a book since high school. Yeah. It's like, that's not something to brag about. No. Like, what, what kind of trauma do you have associated to reading that, anything past 17 years old you see is like not necessary. Like right. that is kind of a real explanatory factor why the world is the way it is. Like people wear that as a sense of pride. Like you will hear people say that and they are stoked to admit it. And it's so fucking flawed. Does it make you sad? It does. It makes my heart sink. It's like, that's pathetic. And I'll tell people that. I'll be like, listen, that's fucking pathetic. I have no problem telling people. I have no problem telling people when something they're proud of is pathetic. Like I think right. they need to hear that, and I think the reason they're proud of it is for ten years no one has told them that. Everyone's like, "Oh yeah, bro, me too." Like I don't read books either. Fuck books, and it just like you know re reinforces that habit and reinforces that false sense of pride in not reading books. And you see people do that with a lot of shit in their life, and their friends, whether they agree or not. As a friend of someone, you owe it to that friend to just give it to them straight. And too many friends will support their friend's bad habits because they just that's what friends do. You just support your friend. It's like, no, if your friend's saying some bullshit, like if you're a real friend, tell them they're being a fucking idiot. Like that's what you should be doing. If you're not doing that, you're not a friend. Right. I caught that when you were saying before, you're like, you were saying originally they were friends and you're like more like acquaintances. And I caught that. Yeah, because... Because I wouldn't, I, I like thinking back on it, like the people, a lot of my friends were kind of like, oh shit, that's cool, but didn't like really go into it. But then like the people that actually were writing like condolence kind of messages, I, I would consider them acquaintances. And actually some of them, that was enough for me to cut them out of my life where I was like, you know what? I don't need to talk to this motherfucker anymore. Um, it's funny because I had this person I consider a friend. He was actually, you know, very stoked for me, but he made a comment one time saying, he posted it on his Instagram story. He said, I didn't have kids because I want to fly business class. And that's one of those things where I was like, that's fucking pathetic. And I wrote him back and I said, my buddy has five kids and he owns two jets. Your goals just aren't big enough. Um, oh, son. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because it's just the truth. 
Okay. Like you think that you think that having children is going to prevent you from flying business class? Like do what my buddy did. My buddy literally has two jets and five kids. Yeah. Very successful. He's like two years older than me, and he was the one who had the conversation with me and said having kids has made me more successful. And I wish more people viewed it that way. And that's why I have taken it as my responsibility to show my journey through fatherhood that way because I'm not, I'm not faking it. Like I genuinely dig being a dad and yeah, there's stuff that's frustrating about it. Like when you're trying to get work done and he's fussy, it's not a cakewalk, but like I said earlier, taking responsibility is not easy, but taking responsibility is very purposeful. And I find the more I lean into fatherhood, the more I embrace fatherhood, I am much more creative. Uh, my writing is better. I have just this completely different outlook on the impact of my words. And when I wrote speech therapy, I wrote that book faster than I've written any book previously because I wrote it very conversational, but I wrote it as if my son was like 16 years old so he could handle a bit of language. And he was coming to me asking for advice in those situations. Right. And with that mindset, I was able to write that book incredibly quickly because I didn't second guess a lot of my work in it. And had I not had him, I would not have written that book that way. So having him absolutely made me more productive. I think it made my book monumentally better. What a lot of people don't know is I tried to write that book back in 2017. I tried to write that book in 2017. I got a couple pages into it and I just couldn't find the motivation to finish it. I didn't have it in me. And then I tried to write it again. And I told, a, not the agent I have now, I told a different literary agent about my idea. And she told me, oh, that idea would never sell. So then I was like, all right, fuck this. I'm going to write this to prove her wrong. So I tried to write it with that very rebellious energy in me, which got me a little farther. But at that point, the book wasn't written correctly because I was writing it from a negative space. And a lot mm -hmm. of people need to understand when you're motivated by being against something, you're limiting the potential of your work. And you're seeing a lot of that right now in the world where people are so identified with being anti-something whereas opposed to being for something. If you're for something, your work's better, you're more creative, you'll always, always make smarter decisions when you act for something. So rather than consider yourself like anti-tyranny, consider yourself pro-freedom. And I guarantee you, if you have that stance, you will do better work, whatever it is you're trying to do, if you want to get in that political realm. So I wrote... When I wrote it that time, being against this literary agent, I got a little farther, didn't finish it. And then I shelved the book for like two years. And then I tried to write it right at the beginning of 2020. And I got probably halfway through it. And then coronavirus hit. And I got distracted with all that. Went through my own little wave of bullshit. And then so last summer, I revisited it. I deleted everything. Started, wow. didn't, didn't, not even a single word made it through the next draft. And my son had just been born. And this was August. He was about a month old. I remember I started the book. I was on a trip in Park City, Utah, so my parents could meet my son for the first time. And that was when I started the book, was on that trip in Park City. And I wrote it with a completely different outlook of what I would tell this young boy if he came to me with all these situations that have the tendency to derail us in life, whether it's a breakup, uh, losing your job, like everything we're going to all probably deal with. What advice would I give him to help him rewrite his mindset and make it through that. And I was able to write the book in a record pace. And that would not have been possible had I not embraced fatherhood. And so 
I truly, as cliche as it sounds, feel like being a dad is the best thing that has happened to me. And I've made it my mission to communicate that to more men. And I've noticed that friends of mine who used to be the kind of guys that were like, oh, I'm not going to have kids, are now talking about the idea of having kids. And when they meet my kid, they want to hold him. They want to spend time with him. And I think deep down, they probably wanted to be a father too, but they just, over the years, pushed that self, you know, that out of themselves, kind of like I did. I mean, I had told myself, okay, I might have kids, but I'll be one of those guys that does it in like his 50s with a really young wife and like maybe, you know, like that kind of bullshit because I'm a career guy. I was like, I'm a career guy. That's how I got to do it. And so like I had, I had told myself that lie so many fucking times. Um. But I am stoked that my son came when he did. I'm stoked that I wasn't ready for it because it forced me to get ready for him and also get ready for life. And I really am stoked that it happened during this whole world bullshit because he motivated me to be more outspoken because he's going to be growing up in this world that I leave behind. And it's also afforded me the time to be home with him more because typically I travel a lot for work when I do take the occasional advertising contract. I'll take me like five or six a year with, with clients I respect or projects I want to work on. I usually travel a lot, but because travel was shut down, everyone's doing meetings online. It allowed me to be home with him. It allowed me to experience more of those real formative months with him when he went from being just a milk zombie to actually having a personality and now he actually wanted to hang out with me and not just his mom. Like I was there for all that, yeah. um, which has been dope. Like the time was ideal. I'm so glad to hear that because I, I love that your perspective has changed because again, it's that responsibility. I mean, you are your father now. And before people knew you as this one, you know, this guy who just partied hard and did lines of Coke. I mean, you've been able to flip it and do an about face. Like I've never seen before. And that's so, that's so like, so special to me because I see the the change it's made in my husband. I see the change it makes in people. And you can really go one direction or the other direction with it. You can really become this really uh, resentful, negative individual who is just mm-hmm. a chore to have this child. Or you can embrace the hell out of it and go, this is my dude. This is my little so homie. That, oh, absolutely. And we, my girlfriend and I were saying last week, like, he's my, he's our best friend. Like, he's our best yes. friend. Like, when I, when I go... When I go do stuff or like when I do have to travel by myself for a couple of days, I'll be like sitting in my hotel room and I'll be like, man, I wish, I wish Ether was here. Like I should be playing with him on the bed right now. It'd be so much cooler than whatever I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but for the people that, that have that resentment for their children, it's, it's what we've talked about throughout this podcast. It's the inability to take responsibility. If you take responsibility for being a parent and you truly take responsibility for it, there won't be resentment because when you, when you, when you accept that responsibility, the reward that comes from being so engaged motivates you enough to still accomplish what you want to do on the side. I am very much confident in saying that my career is going to be more monumental. I'm going to write more books. I will produce more projects because I'm a dad, because I have more energy, as oddly as it seems. I feel more productive. I've gotten very good at time management, and what I'm capable of accomplishing in a short amount of time is far more than what I was able to do before when I would 
when I would sit around all Sunday nursing a hangover and then I might get around to doing something Sunday night that was worth a damn. I don't have time for that shit anymore. And so it's maybe just have to knock out so much stuff. Like when I have like the window to work, I fucking work and I get a lot done because when I don't work, I want to be engaged and I want to, you know, be with him and that recharges me to do more. And so when you truly accept responsibility, you, you will be fed. That reward will be the energy and motivation that you need. And then if you couple that with discipline, if you have some good self-discipline, there's absolutely no reason why being a parent can hold you back from what you want to do career-wise. And that resentment just won't exist. Right. Um, but that's not going to be easy. It's like we've said throughout this as well. Taking responsibility is hard. There's a, lot, there's a reason people don't do it. Um, it's not the easiest way to live. But the easiest way to live is not the most rewarding way to live. And I think, I think Jordan Peterson says it really well and says it often, talking about how humans need to seek out hard things because hard things are where you find the happiness that everyone's looking for. And I can't tell personally because I've never been ultra wealthy, but I have friends in my circle that are ultra wealthy, very successful men that are young. Um, You know, I had a buddy that was like 31 and he was worth over a hundred million. And he had every car imaginable. He had multiple homes. He was at nightclubs three or four nights a week, dropping insane bills. Like he lived the life that a lot of these, I'll call them boys online, emulate. And they think this guy is the shit. He was the most miserable son of a bitch ever. And he will tell you that now. Um, He still is very successful, probably more so now. But he will tell you to your face, he'll say, listen, I've had it all. I've done it all. The most rewarding thing I have ever done is help my friends become successful. So that's where his focus is now is using what he has to build up other friends, build up other entrepreneurs, build up the men around him is where a lot of his energy goes now. And he's very loyal and he's very into giving people opportunity where he wasn't like that in his early 30s. But he was, you know, living the life and he was fucking miserable. And it obviously means more coming from him than it does me because I've I've seen my success, but not to that level. But I can tell you, you will not find reward in in that kind of stuff. You have to do hard things. You have to accept responsibility and you have to have something outside of yourself that requires your time. Um. I got another buddy of mine that's fairly successful and he's been single for far too long. Doesn't have a cat, doesn't have a dog, doesn't have kids, doesn't have a girlfriend. He has no responsibility in his life and he has really bad anxiety and he gets very stressed about small things. And I told him, I said, listen, man, you need something to fuck your routine up. You are too OCD about your life and that's why you have this anxiety. Get yourself a dog, get yourself a cat, get a fucking bird. I don't care. You need something to care for and you need something to mess up your routine. Like you need to wake up one morning and your dog needs to take a shit on your rug. You need (laughs) that experience because that experience will show you that life's not perfect and it's not this manicured outlook you're trying to create for yourself. He's just been alone too long and he needs that. And you need things that are messy to help you appreciate the times that aren't. And you know, if you if people want to have kids, great. If they don't, equally as great. But you need something outside of yourself. 
you need to care about something other than just your own little. And that's where I think a lot of, you know, let's say the, the millennial age group um, falls off. Uh, the, probably the stuff online that I find the most irritating is stuff that reinforces the behavior of being lazy and canceling plans and being someone that can't be relied on and all this, all this self-care shit. Yeah, cool. Self-care is great. You should take time for yourself, but all this like, Oh, self-care. I got to cancel everything and cancel everything and do this. And, Oh, I can't be distracted by anything. I need my Saturdays to do nothing. Like that mentality is the reason why so many people of that age group are fucking anxious, stressed, and super depressed. And then they have the, those around them that just feed into it. And then they have the parents that don't care. They're all the same. Yeah, they're all the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really troubling. I'm glad that you said that, though, because there's this understanding of this generation that it, we need to make things easier. We need to give them safe spaces. We need to give them time. And I'm more of the idea of, I told you before the show, I dropped my kid off in the pouring rain in the forest for eight to 12 hours out of the day because he needs to suck. He needs to know what the suck is. He needs to know how to embrace it. He needs to know how fun in it. He needs to know that he can do those things. And when the teachers come to me and say, he's the only kid that doesn't complain. I look at him and go, goes, mommy been to war. Your excuses are bullshit. Harden up. This is, oh. uh, this is one thing I've noticed about. I think suburb kids probably have it the worst. If you live in like a nice suburb community versus the kids that live and grow up in like a really metropolitan city. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I lived in New York, for example, a lot of those children, with the exception of the ones that were raised by nannies or someone, are very capable. The, oh, fact yeah. that those kid, the fact that those kids are riding the subway by themselves, they're wandering around Times Square by themselves, and they're young, and they're walking themselves from school across Manhattan. Those kids are sharp. They will stand up for themselves, and they are very, very capable because they call it the concrete jungle for a reason. It's very similar to being raised in, like, the country, like you're saying. Like, whereas there's the other spectrum of kids who grew up working on farms, and those kids are equal, equally as capable. But it's like that weird middle ground where yeah. you don't have enough of that heavy city, big crowd, and you don't have enough of that have to go work in the woods. You hit that weird little middle ground where life's like just really comfortable. And those kids tend to be the ones that aren't as capable when they get older. Um, and so I think as a parent, like you're doing, you have to, you're doing your kid a disservice by not showing them how capable they are. And a lot of people might be like, oh, why do you punish your kid like that? When really what you're doing is you're instilling confidence in them and you're showing them that they can survive things without you. Like your role as a parent is not to make your kid dependent on you. Your role as a parent is to show that kid everything they are capable of doing without you. Because there might come in the time in their life when they lose you and they need to be ready to navigate life. And I was one thing I always noticed about city kids before I moved to New York. I remember thinking I could never raise a kid in this city. And then I started thinking, you know what? I actually would want to raise a kid in this city because they are exposed to a lot of culture and just my experience with how capable they were. But now I'm to the point where I'm like, I don't want to be in a city at all. I want to be in the woods where I can fish off my backyard. Right. I want to be close to a city because I still enjoy a lot of that kind of lifestyle, but I don't want to live in one anymore at all. Like I couldn't go back to living in an apartment building. I thought that's what I wanted. I don't need a rooftop patio. I need space. I got a big dog that needs to run. And 
like you're saying, kids need a little bit of that hard work growing up. And I had plenty of that too. You know, my first job was digging sprinkler trenches for a landscaping yes. company when I was a teenager. And then I dug ponds. Like I would just dig fucking holes to put ponds in and rich people's yards. And my dad was always very handy. You know, I was going out with my dad. We were always cutting down our own Christmas trees and stuff like that growing up. Um, I think every child needs that. There's so much value in it. And I'd agree with you. I mean, I took, I went to New York uh, a couple of years ago and our son was well, a little more than a couple of years, but we took him to New York and uh, we were walking around the city. And I remember getting on the subway going like, these kids are going to get stolen. And these kids are ruthless. There's no yeah, way you're getting doing. near them. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they do. And then like, don't get me wrong. I don't live in the city. I live about 40 minutes and we live in a nice area, but there's enough woods that he needs to go suffer. He needs to be mm. in the minus 10 to 20 degrees. I don't know what that is in American, but he needs to be cold. He needs to know it's that fucking, he can... it's fucking cold is what it yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he needs to know that it's okay that you can survive this way, that if I mm. do this right, I'll be okay. If I do this right, I'll be okay. There's a there's a mindset and it's weird because my husband often says I'm like that uh, Grand Torino movie sitting on my rocking chair with a great shotgun. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie, but there is a mindset that needs to be instilled in these children and mm -hmm. it's important. And I feel like if you're not doing as a parent, all that you're doing is a disservice to the next generation. And it's okay that other kids aren't raised that way because your kid, at least, you know, he will be the leader. He will be the one that teaches it and he'll be the one to help instill it in others. And that is so important. I was just going to say like, even if those other kids aren't raised that way, you want to hope you raise your kid to, to teach them, exactly. you know, you ra raise, raise them with the kind of humility and humanity to understand that this is something I can pass on to my peers. Correct. And then he can kind of elevate everyone at the same time, which is the ideal case for any parent. Yeah, well, we were in a situation with, co they're called COVID kids right now, the generation of kids the last two years that didn't go to preschool or didn't do any integration before kindergarten. And he started kindergarten this year. Well, my kid was the only kid that could get dressed by himself. He helped other kids get dressed. He helps them put their jackets on. <laughs> and the teacher's like, he's a leader. I said, no, he just never played in this bullshit. We didn't, this wasn't a life for him. We didn't teach him about that. We taught him that. Well, he also, he also is a leader, though. You know, he's a leader because of that. Yeah. Well, we just never, you know, he was never in a school with masks. He didn't understand that. He doesn't know what that means. He just thinks it's silly. Mommy, they're being silly. I said, oh, <laughs> very silly, sweetheart. Very. Uh, yeah. There's, there's none of that going on down here in Florida. Oh, because so you're in Florida, right? That's right. Yes. I never thought I never in my life thought I'd live in Florida. I also never in my life thought I'd live in New York City. I mean, my kind of ideal life is I, I wanted to live outside Seattle and like the really dense woods there because my dad is from Washington. I spent a lot of summers there as a kid and I've always loved like that real dense evergreen forest. And so I always thought, okay, if I can live outside Seattle and like a really nice, cool home, you know, a good acre of land around me and all trees, that would be my ideal lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and then I moved to Las Vegas and New York City and LA, like everywhere I never thought I would live. Um, and now I'm in South Miami and I love it here. Um, I'm not in the city. I'm about 20 minutes outside of it. You know, it's like a fucking jungle where I live. I mean, yeah. everything's overgrown, Spanish moss hanging off everything, peacocks, lizards, huge bullfrogs. Uh, my dog and my cat chase lizards together in the backyard all day. And it's awesome because 20 minutes from that, I could be in the city. Right. Um, and, you know, as I'm sure everyone in the world knows at this point, Florida has been very 
open and good at, you know, mm-hmm. fighting against, you know, unnecessary lockdowns and mandates and stuff. So it was an area that I didn't plan to live, but also it's something like, you know, same with becoming a father. It wasn't planned, but I, I love it here in Florida. I think it's fantastic. I think I'll always have a house here at this point. Um, it just has a good vibe, a good energy. When you're around all this green life and when everything has trees and lush palms, like it feels energetic. Whereas, you know, Vegas or LA or a lot of the West, like you're around a lot of dead, and a lot of brown. It just doesn't have the vibrancy that that there is here. And it's not, I, I mean, when I pictured Miami, like most people, I picture Miami Vice, I picture South Beach, I picture neon signs and fake asses and drug dealers and kind of the Miami that's been perpetuated through film for so many years. And I've been to Miami a couple of times, but when I did come to visit, I went to South Beach because that was what I expected. Um, so when we moved here, we, t- we took our time to kind of look around different areas and it's like, wow, there is so much to this city that no one knows. And in a way you want people to know it's there, but you also don't because you don't want them to come fuck it up. But <laughs> South, Mi- South, like South Miami is phenomenal. Like I, I love it here. And I and probably it's one of the few places I've lived where like right immediately after moving, I'm like, all right, this was the right choice. Where other places I move and it takes me a while to kind of get into the groove. And like I said, in L.A., I never got in the groove there. Um, I, I immediately just felt it felt right. Dude, I love I love hearing that so much, because especially hearing that, you know, coming out of the way that you were raised in terms of organized religion to see you finding yourself, but then carrying yourself through spirituality and really finding the connection to things like nature and the importance of those things. I mean, it sounds like Mm. I'm going to just say your wife, your wife sounds like she really helped instill and show you that like, man, everything is going to happen the way it's supposed to happen, whether you like it or not. And when you start putting that out there and you start allowing the world to know that you're ready for these things and you're ready to heal and you're ready to be around the things that only make you better, which is vibrancy it gives you energy instead of taking Mm -hmm. the energy like that is so key and it makes my heart so fucking happy to see that you've come out of something that was really dark to only pull yourself into something so beautiful light and vibrant because dear god we need more people like you but i'm (laughs) i don't even know you but i'm proud of you for taking that step dude i appreciate that um like even stuff like grounding like i used to hear that and i'd be like what the fuck is grounding but now like (laughs) Now I'll be like, oh, I, I haven't walked in the grass yet today. So I'll just go out in the backyard and stand in the grass barefoot with my dog for a bit. Or whenever I walk by the beach, I'm like, oh, I, I, instead of staying on the bike trail, I got to go walk on the sand. Um, I used to not do that stuff. But it's funny. I remember being in New York. I remember telling one of my coworkers at the time, I'd been in New York for a couple weeks straight, hadn't been traveling. And I remember telling my coworker, I fucking hate it here. Because my boots have touched nothing but concrete for like three weeks. And I remember just feeling off because of that. And I didn't realize why. But it was something that I was cognizant enough about that it was bothering me. Um, And then I heard, I didn't even know what grounding was. And then I heard what grounding was. And I'm like, oh, shit. My body, I guarantee, was just telling me like, dude, you got to get off this fucking cement. Go walk on something that's not man-made. Yes. Um, so all that kind of stuff, like I'm just more open to and people can believe what they want about it. But I can attest that I feel like mentally, like if you're an entrepreneur, if you're any kind of creative or you're anyone that really feels like you need your brain to operate at optimal levels, you need to open up to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It will 
change the way your thought processes work. It will make you more creative. It'll make you feel way less brain fog, which is something that I've always kind of dealt with, especially with my, my drug and alcohol use. Um, so if you believe it works or not, just fucking do it. And I guarantee you after some time, you will feel sharp and it's going to benefit your life and your career. Well, humans are not meant... We're not meant to be in these, you know, concrete jungles. We're meant to be in nature. And as yeah. whatever, take that for whatever it is, but it's just, it's the fucking truth. It's true. It's just, I, I call it human storage now. Like I see big towers and I'm like, that's human storage. That's like that, amazing. That is, that is a hundred percent what that building is. And I've always been a big fan of architecture. Anyone that follows my posts, like I love old cathedrals. I love Victorian homes. That's always been my preferred aesthetic. Um, but now, so. I just look at tall buildings. I'm just like, oh, human storage. And I just can't shake the feeling of that. And it makes me just not ever want to live in those again because they just feel off to me. Um, and then I don't know if you watched the show 1883. It's like the prequel to Yellowstone. I have Phenomenal show. So it's a phenomenal show. So my <laughs> girlfriend and I got really into that. And as we're watching that, we're like telling each other, like, this is how humans are meant to live. It's brutal. It's hard, but look at the connection they have. Sure, it's actors portraying it, but the way you feel connected to your surroundings and the people around you, and you actually have to have coping skills to deal with hard stuff because death was a very real factor in those times. And so we often tell people whenever like we're talking to other parents specifically, we'll be like, yeah, you got to live like 1883. Like life is meant to be that way. It's meant to be kind of hard and the struggle and you have to learn to cope with shit. Like that's the way life's supposed to be lived. And I've always kind of felt that desire in me. Even as a kid, I remember thinking I wanted to live more off the grid, but I started to associate a lot of success with being in cities. And so that be kind of mm -hmm. became like my lifestyle. But now I'm at a point where I'm looking at horse properties down here in Florida because we're renting a house right now. We haven't decided to buy because the market's fucking ridiculous. But I'm looking at horse profits. I didn't realize there's a big horse community down here. There's a horses actually thrive down here, which if you think back to like the history of Florida and a lot of the Spaniards coming over here and the pirates and the ports, there was a lot of horses coming through. So horses actually do really well in this humid weather. And so probably 99% sure when I do, when we do buy a house down here, it's going to be a horse property, probably farther inland because that's where you get more land. And I, I would like to be, more along the lines of that lifestyle of, of having, you know, chickens and goats and horses and, a, a, you know, like a little orchard and that kind of stuff. And uh, that's, that's probably what, what is right for me personally, but I think it's probably what is right for most people. It is. And they just, you know, whether they don't have access to it or they're not taught about it or they're not educated. I mean, it is. And it, I'm like, I'm going to go back to what I said before. There's a reason why things didn't work the way you wanted them to work before, oh, man. Oh, well, yeah, it wasn't I know. for you, homie. <laughs> I would have fucked it up. I know I would have. Yeah, but look at now what you're going to be able to give your son. Look at the life you're going to be able to give him instead of teaching him that partying and drugs and and like yeah. not paying attention is like the cool thing to do. Now you're going to be like, the cool thing to do is take time for yourself. Go out, hang out with the horses. Go sit with the chickens. And you're going to give him a lifestyle that he's going to not only thrive because of, because of the, the path that you went through, but you're going to be able to give him a part of you that you didn't even know really existed. Absolutely. Or a part of me I knew existed. I just buried and forgot about intentionally. I mean, cause that's where I was raised. My dad always had chickens. Right. We had goats. Like that was my childhood. And 
I think a lot of it was the stigma of just not wanting to live in my hometown my whole life. I am right. a, I, I, I really do believe everyone should move away from their hometown. I think it does wonders for your growth. Yes. And so when I did move out of Utah, I kind of was like, oh, fuck that. And so I really just kind of looked at that as like something I needed to lock away and progress to this next step. And so I just suppressed a lot of that about myself. So I, I, I'm stoked for him to have that kind of lifestyle. But at the same time, he's going to do all the same dumb shit I did. And I'll be able to least relate to him. Like, listen, man, like what you right. did, like that was, that was kind of stupid, but I get it. I mean, I was doing that shit too at that age. <laughs> That's okay. At least you have somebody that he can relate to and is going to be able yeah. to be truthful with instead of hide it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the hope too, is that he'll understand that he's not going to be judged for that stuff. Um, I mean, I don't judge myself for that stuff. I joke about it all the time. I'm sure my girlfriend wishes I joked about it less because um, (laughs) I I joke, I I joke often about like, you know, drug shit and stuff because it's not something that I, I do anymore. I mean, I haven't done, God, what is it? Almost four years since I've, I've done cocaine and, I'm at a point in my life where I don't feel a desire to do it at all. So I feel like I can make jokes about it that are completely harmless. Um, so I, my son will definitely know that he's not going to be judged for that. And my dad did a good job of doing that too with me actually growing up. Cause my dad converted to the church. So he wasn't like really hardcore into Mormonism. It was something he kind of like in his twenties kind of got into and so he had, he grew up in the seventies in Seattle. So he had his, uh, uh, yeah. Peter, Peter, Peter Frampton, Van Halen, Led Zeppelin days where he was getting into all sorts of stuff and he was an artist. And so a lot of the artwork he was doing was like psychedelic and like portraits of Robert Plant. He still has all this stuff and he's still really into Led Zeppelin and all that kind of music. And, you know, I learned about a lot of my rock appreciation through my dad. I mean, he introduced Rage Against the Machine to me when I was probably like 11. Yes. Um, I was listening. I was I was really into Bush at the time. I liked Bush and Nirvana and Silverchair. And my dad was like, "Oh, you got to check this out." My dad list showed me like Rage Against the Machine and White Zombie. I learned all that from my dad. So my dad and I've always had a very good relationship. So when I was in high school and I started drinking and going out and doing stuff, my dad knew I was doing it. Um, he wasn't he wasn't harsh about it, but he he let me know he disapproved. But he didn't do it in ways that made me feel like he was judging me or putting me down. Um, I remember I came home one time drunk, as as you do in high school. And my dad was actually a leader in the Mormon church at the time. He was up late Saturday night preparing essentially his, you know, they call it a, a talk, but it's essentially a sermon that he was going to give the next day in the Mormon church. And he was up late working on that. I came stumbling in just blasted drunk. I was like 17. I know I smelled of cigars because we stole some cigars out of my friend's dad's drawer. And my dad came up to me and he just, he knew I was fucked up. And I remember <laughs> he just put his hand, he's put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Kyle, go to bed and don't let your mom see this. And I actually just felt so understood by my dad. Like he didn't judge me. He wasn't mad. I could sense the disappointment in him. But it helped me have that relationship with him where I felt like I could talk to him about things along those lines and I could make jokes with him and he wouldn't judge me for it. And so, yeah, it's not the healthiest way to live and it's not the way to live. It's going to give you longevity in your life. And obviously it's something that I'm kind of past at this point, but I know my son's likely going to go through that that phase. And if he does, I get it. It's kind of like something you have to learn for yourself. Right. 
I, dude, I, I love that so much. That's, that makes me so happy. I just love people who are just willing to, to be open like that and non-judgmental and especially with religion involved, right? It's nice to see that the judgment wasn't there and that the, the ability to have conversation was there because that's only going to strengthen the bond and it's only going to make you, make you see your son as this, you know, this little dude that you don't have to mold. He can make mistakes mm -hmm. and he can have those things happen and you're just going to be there regardless, which is what's going to save him from, a, you know, going down paths, right? Where the rebellion side, where like, Mike can't talk to my parents. I can't have that relationship. Never want that for a child. No, and I had that with my mother for a bit um, because she was obviously, she had a lot harder time with my rebellion because she was more into the church. And so there was a time when my, my relationship with my mom was fairly strained, but it's come back around to where we have an incredibly good relationship with both my parents now. But I definitely felt that during my teenage years with her, uh, but not with my dad. And so thankfully I had at least one parent that I didn't feel was, you know, wanting to shun me or kick me out of the house for my behavior. And that goes a long way into just letting you know that you're still loved, even though you're living a lifestyle that your parents don't agree with. Um, I think that's important that kids feel that. And whenever I hear about a kid being kicked out of a home by their parents, I want to just go slap that parent across the face. It's like, listen, it's frustrating. Your kid's not doing what you want to do, but kicking them out is not the right answer. Like this kid needs love. This kid is doing this because they're trying to find love. They're trying to find acceptance. And Right now, they're finding that love and acceptance from a peer group that is a bunch of other shitty kids looking for love and acceptance. And so they, they need that from you. And a lot of parents don't get that. And it's hard to see and it's hard to hear, you know, especially when you hear about a kid, you know, coming out as gay and their parents oh. kick them out of the house. Like, that's like heartbreaking. It's like, come on. Like, oh. how, how, how can your whole background of raising this kid and your love for them change like that? It's that's when you really just want to slap a parent. You want to give them a backhand at that point. Like it's gotta yeah. be a good hard one because they need some sense knocked into them. That kid is looking for love and acceptance and everyone in life is ultimately looking for that. Um, whether you put on a very tough shell or not, like that's what everyone ultimately wants is they want to feel love. They want to feel like they're worthy of love and they want to feel accepted, whether it's by a single individual or whether it's by a group, that's what all humans need. And that comes back to where we kind of began this conversation. Humanity is what is lacking in this world right now. And if we can find a way to get back to that humanity, and I do feel like the way to get back to that humanity is to actively spend more time living in the real world. And sure, it can be found online, it can be found on social media, but it's the real world connection that really drives it home and makes it tangible to people. And I've started doing this thing where I don't use my phone at all on Sundays. From the time I go to oh, bed yeah. Saturday night, from the time I go to bed Saturday night, I turn my phone off and I don't turn it back on until Monday morning. So all Sunday, whether it's driving to the store or driving to the beach or doing anything, I don't have a phone on me. I have no GPS. I get lost. Um, but then once I find my way once, suddenly I know how to get there again without GPS. It's like how our grandparents used to drive. Like once you figure out the route to drive, you can do it. Um, so yeah, it's frustrating sometimes, but my Sundays are the days I look forward to more than anything. Like this last Sunday, I got up in the morning to take a piss and I just stayed awake because I was excited for Sunday. And I went and sat on my front porch. I took a kitchen chair out there and I read a book for an hour. 
I went on a walk for an hour while it was still dark outside, and all I could hear was a bunch of weird, unidentifiable birds. And <laughs> you know, it it felt like some Jurassic Park scene shit because my neighborhood is so you know dense jungle, you know, looking. And I love watching movies again on Sundays because growing up as a kid, I remember watching like Saturday afternoon movies, and it was always something I I, I enjoy doing on Saturdays. So I try to usually watch a movie on Sunday too. And I watch like older movies. Like I watched Stargate, which is a movie I used to love. My girlfriend never seen Braveheart. So we watched Braveheart. Um, and I love having those Sundays of no social media. I just living in the real world. And I go on walks with my son often. We go grocery shopping and you find that you shop very mindfully. Like because you don't have your phone on you, you're reading labels and you're very conscious of what you're buying and you'll end up having a conversation with someone else in the aisle because you're both buying the same food and you'll talk about what you're each are going to cook when you get home. And the Sunday, no phone thing is fucking great. And you know, people say, what happens if there's an emergency? People will find a way to get a hold of me. Like, it's not like I'm yeah. not living in a fucking bunker. Like there's a way <laughs> to get a hold of me. There's people around me that you can somehow get a hold of and make them come to my house. Like it's, you just right. gotta get creative, get creative, live like it's 1883, just like that show, get creative. And you'll find a way to get a hold of me, but it's that alone. Cause I've been doing it for six weeks now. And I've been like, you know, along the way I've been journaling basically on Instagram every Monday, I kind of write what I did the day before, just kind of see the progress um, that it's made in my life. And my girlfriend's even made mention of just how much more present I am not on Sundays now because I've become comfortable not being on my phone that when it is with me, I don't feel like it's even there anymore. And I don't mindlessly scroll as much as I used to. And it's that kind of real life living that we need to go back to. Um, don't get me wrong. I still think there's a lot of positive on social media. Like for example, you and I would not be having this conversation if it wasn't for social media. Yeah. I've been able to make a lot. I've been able to do a lot of impactful things with social media, but like most tools, it's how you use them that really affects what you get as your end result. I mean, I could pick up a hammer and I could make something fairly decent, but a skilled carpenter could pick up a hammer. He can make something fucking beautiful. Right. Um, it's the same with your phone. And so I think learning to not use it and see what's going on in real life restores that humanity that the world's lacking right now. Well, I'm, I'm really glad. I'm I'm glad that you you looked into the DM when I messaged you. I'm I'm glad that you 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 know you actually took the chance on on the show and on me and and I'm glad that you're more present for your family. That makes me beyond happy. I just love when I see people that are trying and striving in ways that I just wish more could. And I love to have those conversations because I think there's so few and far between. There's a million podcasts, multiple millions of podcasts in the world. And so many of them are just filled with such bullshit. And I think having, I'm sorry, again, I'm uh, that I, friend. I, hey, <laughs> so, hey, I was, I was anti-podcast for many years for that very reason. Right. My publisher had to basically hold a gun to my head to get me to do my first podcast for the release of fucking history. I hated the idea of podcasts. I thought they were all full of just a bunch of mindless bullshit conversations. Um, sure, there's a lot of good ones. I didn't even start listening to podcasts until beginning of 2021, probably. It's when I actually started listening to some podcasts myself, just because I thought like there was nothing on Netflix to watch and everything else was boring me. 
and the news was all bullshit. So I started listening to podcasts, but I get it. I still yeah. think most podcasts are shit. Yeah. Um, but there are. Are, there are, there are the good ones that really do help people and they really do make a difference. And I'm glad that you, you wanted me to, to be on yours. Well, I thank you. Cause I think you're, you're going to keep making a difference. And I think this episode is going to make a difference for others and, and hearing your perspectives on life. And I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for you being here. And, and please know that you're always welcome anytime you want just to fucking talk or just to promote or whatever you need. You've got a spot here, my friend. I appreciate that. I will definitely be back. Okay. Well, I know we've hit our time limit, so I'm going to let you go. Do you want to plug your socials for me and where everyone can buy your books? After I just got done talking about social media being a uh, something, it's like user for good though. With. It's for I, good. I know, though. I know. Um, yeah, I mean, on Instagram or Facebook, my handle is sgrstk, or people can just search the captain; they'll likely find me easily that way. My books are available on Amazon. Uh, Speech therapy is my re- most recent one, and then fucking history is my release from last year. But then there's also, uh, I think, there's four other titles on there too. I've released seven books; they've all been re-releases. And then Barnes and Noble and all stores carries fucking history. So people that are very anti-Amazon, I know that's kind of a movement these days. You can go to Barnes and Noble and get a good tangible copy there in person. Oh, I love it, man. Well, thank you so much. Um, we'll make sure to plug everything in. You stick with me. Everyone else, it's the fucking captain. See you next week.